Welcome to the first Sunday of Christmas. Welcome to what in some traditions call Boxing Day, which the Sunday funny papers are having a not-so-funny episode with. But here we are, uh, two turtle doves. Do you know what I'm talking about? The second day of Christmas. Christmas is a 12-day festival. And here we are on the second day. And we still have visions, not of sugar plums, but visions of a manger. Visions of a little town of Bethlehem. Visions of shepherds being visited by angels and a newborn child visited by shepherds. Now, while Mark's gospel doesn't mention the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke offer overlapping information about the event. But it is John's gospel that puts the event into its cosmic context. According to John, which we just read, the story of Christmas begins not with a manger of Bethlehem, but some eternity before in the mind and heart of God. For whatever loving reason, when God created human beings, we were created with something of God in us. And one of the ways in which we bear the image of God is that we shoulder a certain God-like ability and freedom to choose. In that tiny gap between stimulus and response rests our humanity, our ability to choose, to choose life or death, darkness or light, good or evil. And that was risky because people can choose poorly, can't we? Every parent knows this risk. But because we would not make robots of our children, even if we could, it's worth the risk. Love without the possibility of rejection is not love at all. The biblical record is the history of a divine lover seeking to woo and win God's own creation. It is also, however, the history of a war going on within the soul of humanity. A war that brings alienation between ourselves and our neighbor, between ourselves and our God. There is almost immediately within the first human family, brothers Cain and Abel, there was jealousy, resentment, and even murder. And our record does not improve from there. Certainly, here and there, there is a noble or a faithful person, a man of God or a woman who appears. There was Abraham who heard God's voice and together with his wife Sarah went off into a distant land to to begin a new people. Then there was that remarkable son of Israel named Joseph who trusted God even when his own brothers sold him into slavery. In jail in Egypt, he still believed that God was with him and with that 
faith and confidence, he so managed his life that soon he was second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. There were many others, of course, great leaders like Moses and Joshua and David, and most notably the prophets Samuel, Elijah, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and many others of great faithfulness. Then there were those of great courage, Esther, Samson, Ruth. We dare not forget the millions of others, of other good, kind, decent people whose names never made it into the biblical record. There have always been generous hearts and souls in every generation. But still, over all, our record on earth as a people is pretty dismal. There were times, even as today, when evil seemed much stronger than good, when love seemed to be swallowed up by hatred, when people ruled by sword or money, and might was often mistaken for right. The world was in darkness, and the greatest darkness was in our own hearts. Only a handful of Hebrew prophets could see that God was not finished with creation. God's love and desire for fellowship with us had not changed. God would complete the work that was begun at creation. And as far back as the prophet Nathan, there was a growing realization that God would one day send a messenger, but more than a messenger, more than a prophet, a deliverer, a savior. Other prophets picked up the theme. Out of the house of David shall come a savior. A virgin shall conceive The government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He will come with righteousness and judge the earth. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. All of this was pointing toward the preparation for a new day of dealing with sinful humanity. Now, let me ask this. When a a fracas breaks out at your house, and it does, just like all of ours, which works better to resolve it? Decrees or dialogue? Some of us are quick to issue decrees. One cartoon showed a couple sitting together in the office of a marriage counselor. The husband is speaking and says, Now that I've told you my side of the story, let me tell you hers. (laughs) Here and probably everywhere, this guy is a decree giver. He is not a dialogue engager. Now, if you liked to give decrees, it helps to be emperor. The Christmas story recorded in Luke's Gospel contains the words, In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar needed more money. 
wars, infrastructure, bribes. You need a lot of money. And that meant he wanted a census or a registration to, take, to be taken to raise more taxes, which causes more oppression and more injustice. Now, it is strange that right at the time that Caesar Augustus issued his decree, God decided that decrees were not very effective. In earlier times, God had depended on decrees to reach people. Through the law, God commanded, and through the prophets, God's exhorted. As the writer to the church in Galatia tells us, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. When people still did not really know God or love God or love one another very much, God abandoned decrees and sent a baby to be part of a family and later to create a new fellowship, a family of God called church. God moved from decree to dialogue, from command to community. Does that make sense to you? At home, decrees don't finally work. I can tell you as a teacher of teenagers, good classroom management depends much more on relationship, dialogue, and community than on rules and regulations. Good marriages are not defined by the legalities of the wedding vows, though that is at least a good place to start. I had a couple in one of my parishes that were elderly and still very much in love. At this point in their life, however, she had trouble seeing and he had trouble hearing. So they would come to worship very early so that he could read the bulletin to her, every word. And then during the service, she would take notes to tell her husband later what was said. One day, when leaving the church, he remarked to me that it was 50 years to the day that he and his wife were married in that very sanctuary. I expressed my disappointment that we could have celebrated a renewal of wedding vows. He said, why should we do that? Haven't worn out the first set yet. <laughs> Wholesome marriages don't require regularly rehearsed wedding vows. They require compassion. They require love. They require grace and tenderness. Decree givers, like emperors, may be grudgingly obeyed, but they're seldom loved. That God should move the divine human relationship to a stable in Bethlehem is one of the deepest mysteries. That the great God of the cosmos should be confined to a helpless baby born into poverty 
in an occupied country to a pair of faithful yet humble and poor first-time parents is a mystery. That God should become flesh, in theological language, that God should become incarnate, is mystifying. What does it mean? Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian of a century ago, offers a story to help us understand. He tells of a prince who was riding one day through a rather poor section of a certain city in his kingdom. And looking through the curtains of his royal carriage, he caught a glimpse of the most beautiful maiden he had ever seen. Soon he found excuses to drive near the spot where his eyes had beheld her on the chance that he might see her again. And before long, he was strongly infatuated with her. He desperately desired to ask her hand in marriage. But how should he go about it? Of course, as prince, he could order her to the palace and command her to be his wife. But what kind of marriage would that be? Again, he thought he might masquerade as a peasant, basically lie. And then when he had won her interest, he would pull off his mask, as it were, and reveal his true identity. Such trickery, however, did not appeal to the prince. And finally, he hit upon the most noble solution of all he would lay aside his kingly robe. He would move into her neighborhood. He would take up a vocation, maybe a carpenter. He would live as she lived. He would get to know her friends, learn to speak their language. He would also come to be known to them as well. And hopefully then, in the natural course of things, he would meet his beloved and gain her friendship, and then her trust and admiration, and finally her love. This the prince did, and finally when the love was won, his beloved came to know his true identity. This could be seen as the meaning of Christmas. Out of the love of God, a Savior was born. When we, in our separated and fallen state, could not come close enough to God, our God came to us on our own terms, becoming known to us in a way that even we could grasp, that we could trust and love. It's important to see that the Christmas story does not end at the stable of Bethlehem. The Savior is still trying to find entrance into human hearts. God is still seeking to woo the beloved creation of people, all people. The Christmas story is God's love being made manifest afresh in human lives daily. One of my heroines is a woman by the name of Corrie ten Boom, author of The Hiding Place. 
She, her father, sister, and extended family, because of their love of God, hid Jews during the Nazi occupation of Holland. They all suffered because of the good they did. She once commented that if Jesus were born a thousand times in Bethlehem and not in me, then I would still be lost. But even here, the story does not end. It's not enough to just go through the motions. We must become a new creation. As a former parishioner once told the Sunday school, just going to church don't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. God gave humans the law through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus, the anointed, the Christ. And this changes the very nature of our relationship between God and one another. It is no longer sufficient to just say, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, on this side of Christmas, we must not only hear it and say it and sometimes do it because we're afraid of getting caught not doing it, but we must believe it and live it in all that we are and in all that we do. Thanks be to God for the gift of Christ at Christmas.